from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 13, Lucky Us, for March 22nd, 2022. I'm Jason Snell, joined as always by Julia Alexander, Senior Strategy Analyst at Parrot Analytics. Julia, hello. Welcome back. Hey, Jason. How are you? All good. All good on this end. I didn't go on any surprise vacations since our last uh, <laughs> episode. So how are you? I'm good. I wish I went on a surprise vacation. I could use a surprise vacation. Uh, yeah, they're the they're the best, right? Where you're like, oh, I guess this is a vacation that we're on all of a sudden. Um, uh, we got a lot to cover, as we always do, because, you know, two weeks go by. And what I've learned is that there's a lot of stuff that happens in the world of streaming media in two weeks. A lot. So much news. So uh, much. A lot. So um, starting with some follow-up, like I like to do, um, the Amazon MGM deal. Uh, which we've talked about before. That's why its follow-up has been concluded. Uh, the European, the U.S. and European regulators approved it. European regulators throwing in a little mm, nagging little barb, saying that they couldn't really stop it because MGM doesn't offer any uh, must-have content. Ouch! I know it's it's my favorite line. I always love when regulators get a little snippy. It's Ouch. my favorite thing. Ouch! You're not important enough to block. The merger. Oh, ouch. Anyway, so now Amazon has sort of James Bond stuff and uh, Stargate, and uh, which is a personal favorite. Bring that back. And uh, a bunch of other kind of assorted material. Of course, not a lot of the classic MGM because that got sold off in the 80s. But they have a catalog and intellectual property and Amazon owns that now. Um, James Bond is complicated because the Broccoli family is involved in that it's not a it's not a straight up people are like oh they own james bond they can do what they want it's like they can't really do what they want because they have to work with the broccolis in eon productions is the broccolis production company and it's a whole thing james bond stuff is really complicated but um but they are the partner for the james bond uh trust essentially so that's that deal now um Turning Red came out from Pixar, originally uh, going to be in theaters, and they, they showed it in like three theaters, and otherwise it was just on Disney+. Plus. It was really good. I liked it. It was fantastic. You liked yeah, it. I loved it. Loved it. Um, you got... So you, you were once... Correct me if I'm wrong. You were once a Canadian tween <laughs> girl, right? I was. I was born and raised in Toronto. So that movie spoke. It was also one of those few times where you could tell that who was ever involved in it was not. Well, I shouldn't say he's not from Toronto, but they clearly could not get people in the movie to say the Toronto the per, the, right. the way we say it, which is to drop the second T. Yeah, it's Toronto. So it's kind of like Toronto. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I loved it. I, I would have seen it in theaters, and yeah. I think a lot of people may have, but I also think there's a bigger group of people who probably would not have seen it in theaters and then tuned into it because it was on Disney Plus and got good press. Yeah, that's that's the, the Catch-22, and I know we've talked about it a lot, but, like, way more people, I think, see these movies that premiere on streaming than would see them in the theater. But I, I also get that you work on it at Pixar and you're like, yeah, but it could have been a hit in the theater and then on streaming later and we didn't get that that moment. But it's it's a lot of fun. I really liked it. I don't know if I would have gone out and saw it in the theater. Maybe, right? But it was much easier to just choose to watch it on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I think this, this is something that, and we're going to get into it later on the podcast, but this is like the quintessential question about the economics of streaming come up more and more often. Yeah. And it will come up more often with movies than it will with TV shows. And so I think what Disney's doing with Pixar and what 
Warner plans to do with this, some of its movies and how a lot of them are shifting some titles to streaming because they think it's a safer bet than theatrical. What that actually means for business models that have existed for 50, 60 years, um, or, you know, let's say 20 years going back to kind of what we currently have and then 50, 60 in terms of theatrical and the way we kind of think of that format. Um, like that is an interesting question that turning red will now play a key role in depending on if we get any information about its performance or and its potential franchise, you know, potentiality. Right. Exactly. Also, just a shout out to the 416 area code. I, I like to do that. Um, I know that it's a 416 because as somebody with a 415, um, there was a period in there where um, I got missed dials early in the morning for people who just misdialed Canada and got me instead in the 415. Um, so I, I immediately learned that 416 was Toronto because um, they were calling me instead. And three hours shifted, right? So it was like 6 a.m. I get a call from somebody who's looking for somebody <laughs> in Canada. I'm like, I'm not in Canada, man. I'm in San Francisco. Uh, anyway, uh, you wrote a piece on puck that i wanted to mention at least which is uh about south park becoming the envy of streaming south park which moved to let me get this straight south park is a is sort of a um paramount property but they moved to hbo max and then they will ultimately move to paramount and it is sort of hot and cold running south park there's so many episodes and movies and you know your your story is basically like this is an, an interesting example of a franchise that became essentially paramount's second most important franchise maybe behind star trek which is hilarious because it's south park yeah, it's South Park remains this extremely interesting media property to me. It has for many, many years. But I think the fact that South Park's value has more than, you know, quintupled in less than a decade is very, very interesting. And I think we, I get into this on too. Um, I, I joined Matt Bellany, who's an editor at Puck and writer at Puck, and I joined him on. He has a podcast called The Town, which uh, I like, and I was able to be on it and talk about South Park with him. And we kind of got into why South Park makes a lot of sense to you know companies who are legacy companies right now, but are trying to be legacy companies of tomorrow, and where they kind of see their metaverse uh, inspirations coming from, where they see this kind of flywheel revenue coming from, where they see this idea of cross-generational affinity coming from. Um, and so we have a lot in podcast to get through, but um, the, the article's online. It, it goes pretty in-depth into the changing economics of South Park. Um, but I do think animation, specifically in adult animation, which our data at Paradise Analytics shows that there is um, a far higher um, market demand share than there is a supply share, which basically means that there is a huge demand for adult animation, which South Park would fall into. Um, I think South Park acts as this kind of beacon of what can become, Rick and Morty being another example. Right. Um so yeah, I think I, I, it was really fun to. There, I I get a, I have a lot of clients, and we get you know I, I have some consulting work that I do, and sometimes it's really interesting work, and sometimes like any job, you know, it's kind of um, less interesting. But the South Park equation is super fun to think about. It is. I was thinking about it in terms of The Simpsons, in the sense that, and this is one of these powers that animation has. I know that you know Friends is is a success story. The Office is a success story. There are other sort of a little bit less, but those sitcom success stories where it's not the same as a prestigious original, but like you've got a catalog and you can dive in and you can put it on the background and it's comfort viewing. And the thing about animation is you can do essentially an unlimited number of episodes because the cast doesn't age and they're paying voice performers instead of paying actors. The, the workload is less. Like there's so many dynamics involved. And I was struck 
by the fact that, you know, first off, Fox built this whole streaming system for The Simpsons. And that when Disney bought Fox, one of the first things they did was say, yeah, The Simpsons is going to be on Disney Plus. And, even, and, and we've been talking a lot about Disney's brand image. And it's like they didn't stop for a moment they were like yes the simpsons is going to be one of the flagship items on disney plus uh even though you would think of the simpsons and you think of disney and you're like are those really um that close and the answer was yeah but we got like 500 episodes of the simpsons it's perfect for it's perfect for streaming because you can build your playlists based on themes of uh, 40 of those episodes or 20 of those episodes and S- south park when i was reading your article south park struck me the same way that the beauty of it is there's so much volume and there's so much sort of diversity and subject matter that you can mix it in so many different ways and that's just that's really powerful and and what i will add to south park versus the simpsons which i think is a great comparison it's the one that got brought up i think the most when the article came up and also family guy as term, yeah. in terms of long-running adult exactly. um, animated shows especially those that premiered on kind of broadcast and then cable um, and have, and have moved very well into the streaming space. What we kind of see happen again from the data with the Simpsons and family guy is that demand has somewhat diminished, which makes sense. There's this demand for the inherent show and the franchise is still extremely, extremely valuable, but new episodes don't necessarily get right. people to sign up. They're not rushing out to get it. I think I made this point in the article where South park feels like for under 40, what John Oliver feels like to above 40, where there is this constant, like, I need to see what's going on. I, they turn it around a week it's topical that's it right that's it is that is that it's current in a way that the other animated shows can't be or aren't at least exactly and i do think that if we look at that example what do they do really well why is this show more than quintupled in value in less than a decade it's not the fact that one it's popular with kids up now it's still popular with adults two it is this idea that they with the with, with matt and trey still in charge of it and they've been in charge of it for 20 you know plus years these are guys who can turn around a show in a week. They can do specials. They can do the movies. And each thing feels extremely topical and irreverent and um, timely for a generation of people who are looking to get that type of content without feeling like they're watching a late night show, without feeling like they're having to sit down and watch a traditional kind of format in the sense of live, um, live action. Right. And so I think South Park has, has managed to become this brand that really worked um, for a generation of kids who are passing around VHS tapes and continues to work for a bunch of kids who are sharing passwords to kind of say, you should watch this <laughs> show, you should watch this episode. So I do think South Park, you know, that that whole story came out of the idea. Matt emailed me and he went, um, what do you think is the most interesting show data wise right now? And why do you think that is? And without, you know, within the span of five minutes, I said it's South Park. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. South Park. Like it's what it's done is rare and it's what will it continue what it will continue to do now for paramount is very rare so yeah it's cool cool show to think about in depth if you're interested (laughs) yeah also funny that this is one of those examples where uh, as the value grows it's bounced around in terms of streaming and and paramount is currently going to get a bunch of money from warner media to put it on hbo max but its ultimate destination is going to be paramount plus uh, it will come home eventually, but like not for a while. It, it has to take some t- travel a little bit before it gets there. Well, and I think for people who are really into the finance side of things, at the maybe the few of you who listen, um, I thought one really interesting part of the deal is um, I learned that South Park still airs on 111 countries uh, through a linear format. And so that money is still coming directly 
into um, Paramount. That that is the thing where they're going to it, all these global countries and yeah. saying like, we want to be on a linear network. We want to run ads on it. We want to be able to li- like license this out. They do that, and then Matt and Trey retain you know their rights to the digital side, and they and Paramount also gets to say, cool. We also want a global foundation on Paramount Plus where we do these exclusives. But what they're basically saying is like, we're going to run the show as is on Comedy Central and in these on these 111 other linear channels globally. And then we're also going from the same team. We're not investing too much more in it in terms of labor. We're also going to get a ton of new content that's exclusive for Paramount Plus as we try to get those cable subscribers to move over to streaming. So it's a rare show that actually can bridge that audience in a way that every single streamer is looking for the thing that will bridge the, you know, dying off cable subscribers to streaming. Um, so that's that's fun to think about too. Is that they have two revenue sources coming in that are going to help fund both revenue sources that needed that need to be funded. Right. All right. Let's move on and talk about another Netflix cancellation. Netflix always seems to make news when they make cancellations. Uh, but this is interesting in the sense, and we'll link to a Joe Dalian story on Vulture about this. The Babysitters Club was canceled after two years. And I think what's interesting is the perspective. Now, obviously, the executive producer is upset because they canceled this show. But the the data, at least in North America, would seem to suggest that it was actually a hit. And this is, I thought, the the interesting quote from the, the producer of the show. As far as I can tell, everything Netflix does is based on how it's driving subscriber growth. The truth is when your show does very well in North America, as ours does, as far as Netflix is concerned, pretty much everybody who's going to have Netflix in North America has it. They're looking to drive subscriber growth in other parts of the world where this intellectual property doesn't have much recognition. Interesting perspective. I don't know whether it's true or not. I want to know what you think about it. But it is this idea that is, if Netflix is looking for global growth of subscribers, and that's the most important thing to them, then a show that's a hit, but just really in North America and doesn't span and isn't pushing subscriptions elsewhere, it, it it's a hit, but it's not. It doesn't have the value that something else might, like Squid Game, might have for Netflix. Is that uh, what do you think about this this cancellation and this take on it from the producers? I have a friend who will remain nameless, but who is pretty in deep with a lot of Netflix people. And what my friend has constantly said to me is Netflix, you know, is the biggest uh, content buyer in the world in terms of original series, the television series, and, and at getting to a point with film. Um, Netflix has the ability to kind of decide and curate what they think the future of entertainment should look like and the voices that they bring in. Um, and I'll preface this by saying, I think it's an, a harder, a very difficult job, especially when you have you have like financial things you have to think about. I get that. But what my friend always says, again, remaining nameless, is um, I think the issue is that the team under Baja Bajaria, um, I believe that's her name, she heads up Netflix uh, original development. Um, he always says, I think the issue is that she's too deep in the data and so is her team. And so therefore, when they're looking at stuff and it's like what works for us and what doesn't, instead of what how it used to be in 2013, 2014, you know, the BoJack um, Horseman era where it was like, oh, well, it's not doing, you know, great, but we, we we like the idea of the show. We think it's doing well enough that we want to see where it goes and we're going to give the show six seasons or six and a half seasons or whatever it was. Like that doesn't exist anymore. They are now in a Netflix era where you have to generate decent ROI within the first, you know, one to two seasons in order to go forward. You have to be something that is being consumed um, 
first and most importantly, locally, it has to be, you know, consumed in the local market. So for the show, it would have been the United States, but it should have some kind of international appeal. And I think to the showrunner's point of the show, when you're in a moment where Netflix is still thinking about the United States, but as I've said on this podcast, is shifting its focus elsewhere because it has to, the conversation about what shows really work for Netflix becomes a different story because it's not what shows works for net work for Netflix now and for us in the United States or even in the UK. It's we need to grow our um, subscriber base in India, in South Korea, in Singapore, in Latin America. What works for these audiences? And ideally, the shows that we make in the United States that we we are doing for our audience back home, which has you know our largest revenue base, um, travels well to these countries, and that's where we're going to continue investing. And so I do think when she says Netflix has changed, we don't know what Netflix wants anymore, which has always been a, a complaint that showrunners have brought up. Showrunners right. have always said they don't have any information from Netflix. Um, that's in part why Netflix started doing the the um, Netflix 10 list that they produce every week, which is like, here's some hours. It was in part because, I mean, they could brag about how many people are watching their stuff, but they could also kind of point to it in negotiate and not in negotiations per se, but they could say like, there's a public thing that's holding people account uh, us accountable that's showing what's popular and we're not just hiding behind it in the way that Nielsen does for te- for television. Um, and so I do think the things that Netflix are constantly changing, and if you're a showrunner, it's a really difficult place to kind of figure out, are are we successful? Are we not successful? Are we successful enough in this moment? Are we successful enough for what Netflix wants in in its future? All these different questions come up and are extremely important. And I do think the the central thesis to what that article is about is like more um, public transparency about what that, what the company's strategy is. Like where where are you focusing? Why are you focusing? What does that mean for us? Like, what does that mean for where you're buying from? Whether or not we get that, I doubt. I think Netflix is extremely protective of its strategy. I think Netflix is in this awesome but also terrifying R&D moment where Netflix is realizing, you know, like our TAM, like our total addressable market may not be as big as we thought it was, or they won't say that, but other third parties have said it. Um, we know we have to move into games. We have to move into other flywheel uh, ancillary revenue um, vehicles so that way we can kind of continue moving forward um, if there is a ceiling on content. We don't know if there is, but let's just assume there is. Now your strategy shifts and the people who are kind of left in the dark are the showrunners who for a, a few years were like Netflix is buying and Netflix is still buying, but it's like they're going to take a chance on things that other companies can't because they have theatrical or they have advertising um, um, duties they have to kind of meet. Um, and so now we are in this moment where Netflix kind of feels, again, like a wild, wild west for a lot of showrunners who are not making Stranger Things, who are not making Umbrella Academy, who are not making pretty easy and cheap to produce reality TV that does pretty well for Netflix. And so I do think there is this hesitancy to kind of be like, I don't know what I'm going into, but also no one else is probably going to buy this project. And so we have to work with Netflix in part because they they will pay us and they'll give us a chance to do it. It is. Yeah. I mean, you also have this feeling and I I got that out of the article that you made this thing. You're proud of it. You think it was a hit. You think that this is like a career making thing for you. And after two years of getting paid for it, which is great. But after two years, it's over. Like, it's just over. And you have this moment of like, well, I thought that when when this happened, this would be this career making moment. And instead, I'm going to have to go point at it and say, well, it was really good. And Netflix killed it. And now I need more work. I like I get the frustration of a creator, um, especially since they were always sort of intuiting what Netflix wanted anyway. And now Netflix has changed the rules and it's uh, 
I I have to think that this is maybe a creative challenge for Netflix right now that that some creators Netflix has money on its side I suppose although we should talk about that too maybe how how much money and is it like the old days but you know uh, if I look at Netflix and think they're quick to cancel things and um and that they're opaque about what they want uh, if I'm a creator does that make me less likely to go work with Netflix I don't know and I think back in 20, let's say 2015, right? Like, let's see this beautiful height of Netflix where they realized these colloquial streaming wars are about to begin. Netflix, you know, 2014, 2015 says we want, we're going to invest double, triple into originals because we know that we need to supplement these shows and films we're about to lose. So we're going to do this. It's a beautiful time for a lot of content sellers, for a lot of production companies and for a lot of showrunners and writers and directors who are pitching. Because all of a sudden it's like, yes, Netflix, who's already spending a ton of money, is going to spend even more. And they're not going to spend it on licensing from the biggest firms who are already working with different talent, they're going to be le- they're going to be looking at other options. They're going to be looking at smaller production companies. They're going to be looking at individuals to do over uh, overall deals with, and all these different things. Like that's a really exciting time for Netflix. At the same time, Netflix, you know, 2015, no competition. The only real competition at that moment in time was CBSL Access and Hulu. Hulu wasn't as much into the originals game at the time because its parent companies were all the big content suppliers and they were owned you know stakes in it so they were more than happy to kind of say yes of course we're going to um license out content to this 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 streaming platform that we have an arm in cbs all access didn't know what it wanted to be it was basically home for cbs uh and so that became a a, that wasn't even on the table the only thing you could go to really was um netflix amazon prime video was starting to come up now, though, you fast forward seven years, you've got Apple, you have Amazon, you've got smaller streaming services that are uh, um, allocating more budget towards um, acquiring originals. You've got like Shutter, you've got um, Crunchyroll, excuse me, yeah, Crunchyroll. You've got all these different ones that are saying like, hey, if you want to come work with us, we want to try and, and tap into a market or we want to try to compete with Netflix. We want to build up our service. So now with these showrunners, there's this moment of like, okay, well, if Apple can guarantee me, you know, two seasons, and who knows if they do it, but if we can do that, why would I go? Does that does that make me want to go to them instead of Netflix or whatever it might be? So not only is Netflix feeling the increased competition in terms of actual literal competition for attention and for streaming time and for uh, a fi- a brand, a brand affinity and awareness, but they're also now going to be in this moment where they have bidders who are willing to spend even more than them on the Apple and Amazon front. They have bidders who now have their own streaming platforms and are saying, not only are we going to keep our own originals, we're also increasing our budget to try and buy some of those shows that Netflix wants to buy. So if you're Netflix, you are now thinking two specific things. You're going, we need something to be a pretty a global hit if we can do it. Always, always remember that they think local hit first. As long as they have local hits, they can kind of guarantee an increase in subscribers in that market. Um, so that's the issue with India and Latin. There's not necessarily a huge string of hits, especially in India. There are other issues, but let's say for the context of this point, um, that that's one of them. And then the next thing Netflix has to think about is we can't keep spending, you know, we can't keep increasing our content budget, you know, three, four times every single year. We can't go from $18 billion to $22 billion next year. Like that, that's that's especially if our subscriber growth is slowing, our stock is down, like there's certain conversations that they have to have. So all of a sudden, those really difficult conversations about do we keep the show that is maybe maybe has an audience, is maybe doing well in one country, but is not traveling, is not being completed, is not leading to all these other different shows, These, you know, which we call referral value that Netflix really takes to heart. If it's not hitting that, it's much easier for Netflix to go, 
okay, let's cancel this and let's try something else that may hit all of these things for us. Now, I have more to talk to you about about um, the the streaming business model in general. Very interesting uh, piece by Matt at Pup at Puck that we're going to talk about in a minute. But before we do that, I want to take a break because we have a sponsor again. That's right. <gasps> oh my we're, goodness! This podcast has sponsors now. This episode of Downstream is brought to you by Pocket Casts. How good is the app you're currently using to listen to this podcast? You're listening to a podcast right now. What app are you using? Does it mix your music and podcasts into one confusing experience? Hmm. Does it have all the features you need? Is it thoughtfully designed by people that listen to podcasts each and every day? Why not try something new? Pocket Cast is built by podcast listeners for podcast listeners. No matter how you listen to podcasts, Pocket Casts has you covered. Pocket Cast seamlessly syncs your listening progress across iOS, Android, and the web, and it supports Amazon Alexa and Sonos smart speakers. With CarPlay, Android Auto, and even Android Automotive support, you can listen in your car too. You can enjoy the vibrant, constantly updated discovery section. It's very good. You can find your next podcast with ease uh, with Pocket Cast. It also supports Apple Watch, including offline playback when you're jogging without your phone, AirPlay, Chromecast support. It's also fun to check out your listening history and stats. And here's a clever feature. It automatically rewinds podcasts a tiny bit if it's been a while since you listened so you can catch up on the context when you start again. Um, I have used podcasts, uh, Pocket Casts a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts too. It's uh, really a, you can see the care in it. It's made by people who care. Knowing the developers there, they really do care about podcasts. They really want to be responsive and they want to support everything, which is why it's in your car, whether you've got an Android phone or an iPhone. Uh, It's just great stuff. And it's completely free to use. But as a listener of this show, you can get some exclusive benefits. If you go to pocketcast.com slash downstream to download Pocket Cast and redeem a six-month free trial of all the premium features in Pocket Cast Plus. If you're already a Pocket Cast user, but you haven't tried Pocket Cast Plus yet, you too can redeem this offer. Just go to pocketcasts.com slash downstream to find out more. Six months of premium features. Thank you, Pocket Cast, for supporting downstream and every part of Relay FM and playing our podcast. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so Matt wrote this story at Puck about um, if if the media industry was souring on streaming, although the way I phrase it is also sort of like is Wall Street souring on the potential of streaming and the business model of streaming. And I wanted to to quote a paragraph from it. And then I, I, I'm curious about your thoughts about this whole issue. It's a big issue. We're certainly going to be talking about it week or, you know, fortnight to fortnight on this podcast. But I thought this was really interesting. Legacy media executives seem to be getting nervous. Most have stopped talking about taking on Netflix as a purely subscription video on demand competitor. Instead, companies like Disney, Comcast, WarnerMedia, and Paramount are now redefining their goals to incorporate reduced spending, less ambitious growth metrics, and additional revenue streams like advertising, which allows for lower pricing. Scale has shifted to sustainable business as the dominant buzzword. I, I knew this would happen because there isn't infinite money. I am surprised that it's already happening. Here's my biggest issue with what's happening with a a bunch of these streaming companies is they're playing to the street, which is, I mean, common. Every company plays to the street in many ways. It's very important to them that their stock does not fall, you know, 500 percent. Sure. When they're trying to do that, they're making these these projections of two to of like triple times 
what the original internal projections were or whatever they were seeing in order to satisfy the street, in order for them to sell the idea that streaming is not only the future, it is the near future. It is the thing that is going to be profitable in three years. And they're going to have these, there's going to be this massive, massive, um, you'll hear me use the word Tamalot. It's a total addressable market. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, does streaming, is it able to kind of hit these goals that they were originally projecting? The answer is not necessarily in that time frame. Let's say hypothetically Netflix still has a TAM of a billion people. Netflix is not going to hit a billion people this decade. It's just not going to happen. Like it, it, there's there's a great model that I used to talk about this a lot. It's called the the Bass Diffusion model, which um, Jason may know from Apple, where there's this idea that if once you start, once the uh, the innovators start working on something, and then the mat the main adopters start picking it up, there's a massive spike in adoption. It becomes super mainstream. So if we mm-hmm. think about you know iPhones, iPods, whatever it might be, the cell phones, like all of a sudden there's a huge thing. The mistake that a lot of, not I won't say a lot, but some executives, some teams make is going, well, it's just going to continue growing. That's not how anything works. Once the mainstream has adopted it, you have to wait. It starts to come down. You wait for the next wave of innovation. So for Netflix in this scenario, you know, streaming, they're the innovator in streaming starts picking up. All this competition happens. Main adopters come in. Netflix, boom, 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 does really well. Starts to slow down because most people who have Netflix in the United States and, and many other countries are going to have Netflix. So Netflix moves on to its next innovation piece. How do we use games? How do we use live experiences? And then on top of and incorporating with our original content, our main core asset to create this next wave of adoption where we see massive subscriber growth. That is way easier said than done. And that is something that takes years of R&D to support. And so what is happening is a lot of these companies are getting hailed, or sorry, hailed, they're getting, uh, uh, wrong word, all these companies are getting um, railed by the street for saying things like, oh yeah, you know, let's look look at Disney. By the end of 2024, 2025, we're going to have 260 million Disney Plus subscribers. That's a wild projection. I mean, maybe like they're, you know, they're halfway there. They did that in two and a half years. So maybe they get there, but they have to do it through advertising plays. They have to do it by widening Disney Plus. The original idea of what Disney Plus is has changed in part in order to satisfy that projection because they can't walk back that projection that would absolutely disseminate their stock market as their, their stock. It, they cannot go. Oh, actually, we're going to have less subscribers. Also, theatrical is not really doing well for us. <laughs> we're losing subscribers on the cable side and parks, you know, well, parks, let's say, hopefully is fine. Hopefully this pandemic is moving toward an end point. Um, and parks and cruises are back. The point being streaming was never, ever, ever, ever going to become this massive thing. Uh, overnight. We looked at Netflix and said, we can recreate that. And that's just not how it works. Netflix was the thing that kicked off mainstream adoption. But even Netflix is hitting a point. Let's say, let's say they saturate in the United States. Let's say there's, I think uh, Moffat Nathanson said there's about 6 million more, they think subscribers in the United States. That would be about 81 million subscribers in the UK, um, United States and Canada, which is about on par, maybe a little bit more than the current number of pay TV households. Let's assume half of those pay TV households come over to streaming completely. They finally cut the bundle. People, unfortunately, literally die off. Cable subscribers, you know, like this happens. You're still not going to hit a billion in 10, you know, like it's it's still not a thing that's going to happen in the next five, six years. And I think they're trying to sell this idea to the street that we are in this right now and it's perfectly fine. It's like, no, this is a it's a it's a costly business. You have to be in for some of them in order to, you know, continue being a legacy media company of tomorrow. 
Not every company needs to be there. Jason and I have talked about this many times on the podcast where it can it's it can be much more financially beneficial just to license your product and not be a distributor, not be a controller of it. Right. Sony. Um, <laughs> Sony being the best example. And so I do think I read that piece from Matt and I was like, I'm glad that we're finally starting to talk about this. I got a text from a pal who works in the industry. Um, again, I won't say the name. But I was tweeting about this thing and my pal just said, um, you should just tweet that Netflix is a Ponzi scheme. Now, I don't think mm-hmm. Netflix is a Ponzi scheme. I think I don't at all. I just think we have to be realistic with what we're thinking about. There's the way that we talk about streaming and then traditional media in any public capacity is always versus and or. Like it's never like, hey, you can have streaming and also people want to watch sports and they're going to find a way to do that. You know, you can have streaming and people still want to go to movie theaters. So we're figuring out a way to do that. You know, I think an important conversation that we should have when we look at what works for these companies on a revenue uh, and and a scale perspective is people want to stream uh entertainment like uh, video entertainment and they also would like a newspaper subscription they would they listen to audio like there's other ways that they can kind of come in and offer bundles and figure things out but what we have to stop doing and like is making these promises that in like five six years there's going to be these insane numbers that come out and we're going to hit it and all of a sudden cable's just going to die off cable is definitely losing customers every single quarter we know this it's still a 70 75 uh million dollar uh, sorry million household business in the united states alone it is still a preferred option in many international countries india is a great example where netflix can't get in with india because they don't have the original content and cable is extremely cheap in india so why would people leave it so all of these things make it really difficult to say to the street every three months on earnings calls Oh yeah, no, no, we're still on target to hit, you know, this, this number, unless we do these insane things. We offer an advertising tier. We give stuff away for free, whatever it might be. I want us to just be a little bit more, this is going to sound rude, but level headed with expectations. It's not going to replace anything overnight. It is going to take a minute. Is streaming still a thing forward? Absolutely. Like, is the internet going to go away? No, like it's only going to get more ingrained in our lives, um, especially if Mark Zuckerberg has anything to say about it. And so entertainment will be a core part of it. But we are not going to replace, you know, 20 to 100 years worth of how entertainment is consumed overnight. Like that is just not going to happen on a mass, mass level. No, and the the acceleration rate, your point about Netflix being first, the acceleration rate that Netflix saw at the beginning was because they were the innovator and they were entering what they call a green field, basically an empty space. And and you can't say, oh, well, now everybody's going to do that. I was like, no, that's not, not even Netflix can do that now. That, that time is over. Um, I, I'm reminded of the famous, uh, you know, the marshmallow experiment where they give a kid a marshmallow and they say, if you don't eat this for five minutes, I'll give you another marshmallow too. And the question is like, at what age does the kid just eat the marshmallow? And at what age does the kid realize, oh, I need to defer gratification, um, so that I get more marshmallows later. And I, I, I'm reminded of that here because, you know, scale versus sustainable business the whole thing here is this is a land rush and and when you shift from scale to sustainable business what you're saying is we're no longer going to be willing to lose money in order to get market share to get land to get brand equity um 
and it is an investment, right? The idea there is that if you're one of the last people standing in this new era and you've built a pretty big streaming business, at that point, you've got a franchise and you can just you'll run it forever or at least, you know, for decades. That's the idea. Um and so we've all been looking at this thinking, well, at some point, the music, the proverbial music will stop and uh, there will be that nobody's going to be continuing to invest at that level because they're going to move to sustainable business. Like we got the land. The land rush is over. There's no more land. So now we're just going to uh, get the money back that we invested. We're going to take our profits. Um, Wall Street is funny because Wall Street always wants to seem growth, but there's all uh, see growth, but there's always unrealistic expectations for Wall Street. Businesses do go from being growth businesses to being sustainable businesses that make profits but don't grow as much. Wall Street doesn't like that, but that does happen eventually. And and I my surprise here is just that people are talking about this now. When I look at this field and I think that we're, we are still in a land rush here and that the winners are going to be those who um, spend more money than than they should in order smartly in order to take space away from their competitors and be one of the ones left standing but i also appreciate the fact that if you're an investor or even a board member or an executive at these companies that they're they're how much appetite is there for throwing huge amounts of money at something in the promise of getting that marshmallow in five years well exactly and i think the other thing netflix misses out on specifically as a company that other companies have to their advantage is this idea and i know that you know both ted sarandos and reed hastings have talked endlessly about the idea that, you know, we're not trying to build out big franchises. But going forward, if we think about the fact that if we think about what we just talked about with South Park, this idea of like cross-generational affinity, this idea of like a flywheel and ancillary revenue coming in, all of those things help to support the overarching product, the overarching ecosystem. If you're able to have a Marvel, that is going to help support other arms of business while also supporting future Marvel installments and what you're going to do there. So for Disney, this advantage of being able to say, we are going to figure out a way to cross our IRL business, which is the parks and the cruises, um, merchandise, with our content business and our digital business, which is the streaming and the games and whatever it might be, will create a moment for them, ideally, we'll see, you know, they hope, in the future where the revenue kind of finds this new growth momentum. And that is where your R&D comes from. That is where you figure out, okay, what is the next step? What is, you know, there was a, there's a moment in the early 2000s where HBO, some of the HBO guys wanted to launch HBO Now basically in like 2002. Um, and the issue is that, or I think it was like 2005, but the issue was like DVD sales were still a really big part of HBO because a lot of people didn't want to subscribe to cable. So they would spend like $60, $70 on the Sopranos box set and be able to watch it. And so they said, if we put everything on the internet at the time, broadband was just coming in. It wasn't even massively adopted yet. You know, what are we going to lose on here? We're going to lose out on all of our pay one windows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward. Turns out broadband internet, huge deal, yeah. uh, game changer. <laughs> Turns out all these different things started playing out. And so we're, we're on that next precipice, whether that is, you know, the quote unquote metaverse, whatever it ends up being, there will be a change in consumer behavior that is dictated by consumer technology. Um, and from that moment, if companies like Disney and Netflix or whomever can find a way to be at the center of it, and that usually comes from adoration and affinity that people have for a certain brand, a certain franchise, a certain thing that they have that they incorporate into part of their daily life, it's going to work out really well. And if you can't, if you're constantly just like, we're going to up our content budget and hope that one of the things that we do becomes the center of our universe, that's, I mean, it's, it's a 
it's a crapshoot. Like it's harder to do. But again, I really want to say this, like, this is not an easy job. No, none, none of the, I, I say this in a lot of interviews, um, interviews with press, but also with like clients, no one knows what the next step is. Like we all have ideas. We have data to support us. There's creative geniuses who come out here and say, like, I think this show about um, a fictional show about Rupert Murdoch's family is going to do really well. And it does like, <laughs> like there, there's people who can plan that and can say, I think this is a good bet. And it turns out to be one. But in terms of, you know, what is the 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 functional shift in consumer behavior that is dictated by new emerging consumer technology we can't even think of? Like that is something none of us know. And so we're all trying to figure it out. The issue to your exact point, Jason, is if you're spending $25 billion in a year because you think you have to and the street is really going to pummel you if you don't, if they think you're slowing down, if they think you're losing out to competitors, that gets to a really slippery slope of how much do we keep doing this? Uh, last thing I will say, Netflix is pretty much cash. I think they're still cash positive. They might not be after the latest earnings um, and they're projecting a weaker Q2. But like Netflix is basically out of debt. They, like, it, this is not a moment where we're going like, oh, Netflix is done. Like this is over for them. Like, no, they're and they're doing the smart thing, which is we're focusing on our R&D measures. We're trying to figure mm-hmm. out what's next. We're trying to invest for, you know, three, four years from now. Um, but it is a conversation where it's like the market should not dictate the speed of which this is happening because we need to wait for what that next functional shift is. I think the idea of uh, Netflix as a as a Ponzi scheme, uh, like I get it because people have said for a long time, like they they're spending a lot of money that is it's unsustainable. At some point, they're going to have to cut back. And what happens then? And I I do think it's fascinating to ask that question of Netflix has all the first mover advantage and they have their international advantage. They have been international for a very long time, but they built a lot of their business on other people's content. Um, that may at least for now that's going away. Maybe some of it will come back at a later time they have not been as successful as you might think they might have been and we've talked about this here uh, in building their own franchises and having their own you know must see stuff that that gets people coming back to netflix that's a hard business and they've been learning i i think it's worth at least wondering and this is true for all of these streamers honestly it's like you spend all this money there is a point at which you are spending money you shouldn't and i think that's the question what does netflix look like when all its competitors are international it can't you know when it loses a lot of its first mover advantage it's still netflix but at some point if yeah. it says we got to back off on what we spend on content because we just can't uh we 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 aren't growing like that anymore um, they get in a really risky area where now they're just like Disney Plus. They're just like yeah. HBO Max. They're just another streamer with a content rollout. And that's a different business to be in. And they haven't really had to be that yet. That's the, I think that's the big uh, risk for all of them, honestly, is that that moment of like moment of truth. Are you confident that you can survive if you if you turn off the spigot a little bit? I don't know. Exactly. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, we 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 get to sit here and and talk about it like this, but like this is fundamentally like nobody knows exactly where this is going and exactly what the business models are that are going to hit and when you should spend the money and when you should not spend the money and it's scary because yeah, you're you're 
if you're if you're um, Disney or Warner Media or whoever or Apple or Amazon, you're spending lots of money that you're probably losing <laughs> because you have the hope of something that you're benefiting for down the road. And what if you're wrong? Like it's scary if you're an executive and you do that. That's not great. That's not. I mean, you know, this great. This is my full time job. I I spend countless hours mm-hmm. a day looking at research, reading other reports, talking to people in the industry, like my entire day from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed is talking to people, reading people, doing my own research, try, you know, throwing things at a whiteboard and just trying to think of it. And I'm not spending $2 million. I'm not spending $120 million on a show or a movie and thinking like, hope this pays off because it's like one tenth of our budget uh, for, for this quarter, for the year. Um, so yeah, I think just to add to your point, Jason, because I think it's extremely good and, and just to reiterate, like we, we sit here and we have these conversations and I think we're pretty smart people. And um, I talk to a lot of very intelligent people who inform my decisions or who inform part of my thinking who are much smarter than I am. Um, and they don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, we don't know. And, and we aren't in charge of that. And I think it takes a lot of guts to be in those roles and say, like, I'm going to fight for the show that, you know, maybe I have some data to help me, but I'm just going off my gut and thinking it's decent and i think there could be a good chance for it working that's tough that's a tough job yeah that's why they get paid hopefully the big money (laughs) Uh, some of them at least do i wanted speaking where you know a lot of netflix talk this time but you know they're big uh interesting story came out about netflix testing some password sharing charges there's been a lot of talk about this in in uh chile Costa Rica and Peru. So three markets where they're they're testing. Variety broke this story. And um, the idea here is, and this is what Todd Spangler reported in Variety, Netflix will let members who share their accounts with people outside their household to do so easily and securely while also paying a bit more according to the director of product innovation at Netflix. And there's a blog post about it. The new options will roll out in the next few weeks in the three countries and may or may not expand beyond those markets. And from the blog post, members on our standard and premium plans will be able to add sub accounts for up to two people they don't live with, each with their own profile, personalized recommendations, login and password at a lower price. Um, and they can also transfer that profile down the road to a standalone account so they can keep their all their metadata. Now, the way that this is being sold in a lot of stories is Netflix is coming for password sharers and i don't read it quite that way like because the truth is that people travel and like if you do if you do a really kind of brutal like you don't seem to be the right person kind of thing you're going to actually make legitimate customers angry uh and it's not great this seems more like can we it feels more like almost an amnesty to me where they're testing basically mm. like if we if we get these little pools of people who are sharing uh, to go clean and pay a, a little bit less to be part of it, can we convert them into a paying sub? That was how I read it was that that because I don't know how far they can go down the path of a draconian anti password sharing technology, because the truth is like if I go somewhere else and I'm in a hotel on a business trip, um, if Netflix says, I'm not going to let you watch my stuff, uh, I'm going to be really angry. And there, and there are not a lot of great ways for them to handle it. So I, I look at this as being sort of a little bit of saber, saber rattling, trying to scare people and a little bit of, can we convert you know, cl- kind of a, it may not work, but a clever way to say, can we convert some non-paying subs into paying subs by offering this sort of sub account deal with their own metadata? What do you think? 
I think you, that's exactly right. I, I think so before they decided to like actually implement this new price tier, they originally ran an experiment that was uh, you had to, they were going to crack down and say like, Hey, we recognize that you are not in the actual homeowner, uh, home of the con- account owner. Um, but you could text the account owner and they would give you a, a password and then you could watch it. Right. And so this yeah. kind of made me think, all right, so they're targeting a lot of like college kids, a lot of like, yeah, yeah traveler. And they're like, Hey, yes, I'm on this account. I just, don't, I'm not there right now. The new one makes me feel like, to your exact point, Jason, I think you hit the nail on the head. There are probably clusters of people, you know, five, six people who are all sharing one account. Um, I know that my friends and I give, we each spend $10 and we have a pool and there's like four or five of us that have YouTube TV and like that's just the way we do it because it's 10 bucks each. Um, and so I bet for Netflix, this idea of like, Okay, what if we give four people it for free? We'll try it. Like this idea of kind of like if you're in this household, let's assume that there's three to four people in a household. And let's, let's assume that these are not just friends. It's an actual family sharing it. Um, will you then pay about 25% of an uh, – or about 75% off from a marketing perspective of a Netflix subscription to join this account, keep all your metadata. You know it. We know it's it's not a non-hassle for you. And all you're paying is like, you know, two, three bucks more. I think – for Netflix, it's the best case scenario to see in um, areas like Latin America where piracy and password sharing is much higher in areas like India where there is this um, less there, – there's less of a uh, need to have five, six streaming services, even, you know, two, three, where they're, they don't pay very much for their content. And so Netflix is an expensive option coming in even at their cheapest tier. Um, it's a, it's an experiment. It is, this is what it is. They've, they've outlined it. It is, we want to see if we can generate additional revenue, even at a lower ARPU and bring it, that's average, uh, average revenue per user and bring in more subscribers, um, for our balance sheet, which is nice, which shows that it's growing. If we offer it for, you know, 75% off, can, will this actually work? Will this get people to actually sign up instead of those potentially lost customers? Um, remember with piracy, you can say it's guaranteed lost customers because you don't know if they actually would sign up. So it's always potentially right. lost customers. Um, can we get those potentially lost customers? Can we increase our revenue even the slightest bit? And then could we convert that when they be, when, you know, let's say it's a, a college kid who moves off. They're on uh, a family plan when they move in with their partner or if they start a family or if they move in with their own friend, would they get their own account then? It's like, okay, cool. I, you know, like I'm now moving. There's too many people on one account. All of this is, again, like what that conversation we just have, which is these functional shifts in consumer behavior dependent on kind of consumer technology. Like if we make these changes, will the behavior actually match it? Can we um, shift behavior to make this match the way we want it? I also think... I saw a lot of tweets that were like, oh, well, this is it for me, Netflix. Like, I'm going to leave. Netflix has like a 2.3% churn rate. Like, it's the lowest out of all of them. Netflix has enough decent shows and movies across the spectrum that somebody will eventually sign up for it. And I think in part, you know, there's always going to be an increase in piracy in the streaming age. It's just naturally going to happen. But I do think there are a lot of people who will do this enough times that it gets annoying. And annoying is always going to win out over spending if people have the means. It's always going to be like, okay, fine, I will just pay the six bucks. And I know this because I went through enough uh, password sharing. I can say this because I now pay for Showtime. I went through enough password sharing with Showtime and then pe- too many people were on the account that I finally was like, it's fine. You know what? I'll pay for it. Like, yep. I'm just going to sign up for it. 
and I've and now I have Showtime, and like, right. I'm not going to cancel it. And so I think that's the sweet spot, right? Is you want it yes. to be inconvenient enough that people go legit without being so inconvenient that your legitimate customers get angry at you, right? Like that. That is a tough thing to do, but there are ways to do it. And 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 you're absolutely right. Like I look at this also, and I think there's so much. I mean, well, let me back up a second. Piracy, you mentioned. It's like. Is password sharing piracy? I mean, it's it's not under the terms of the license. And yet, if you have right. three friends, are they roommates? Do they live next door to each other? Do they live down the block? But they split a password so that they get Netflix. Is that really one person who has Netflix and the other two people are pirates? Or is it really sort of a shared communal you know, Netflix account where everybody is paying presumably a third and chipping in in order to do it. Like, that's not quite piracy. I know it's not what Netflix wants. And I think the truth is, and having kids in college now, especially, um, how, what's a household? Right, right. Like, really, exactly. what's a household? Younger people, people in their, in their 20s, especially like they're going from, from roommates to other roommates, like does every roommate is every roommate going to have their own Netflix account? That seems unlikely. This sort, these functions let you kind of like split them off. I actually think it's also a great way for parents to make their kids pay for Netflix a little bit. As you like, you know, now you're now you've got your own place um, and you're going to pay, but a subset, but you get to keep all your Netflix metadata. Like I just I, I see this as being really interesting in a lot of ways where netflix is experimenting with the idea that maybe the monolithic one person slash household whatever that is per account thing doesn't make sense and like is there another business model here that that makes sense and and i think we really need to acknowledge that the three locations netflix chose are is extremely specific netflix chose an area with a lower RPO, again, that's average revenue per user in an area where there's already an extreme amount of password sharing yeah. and high piracy. So for them, the the loss potential is not super high, but the gain potential, if it actually works, is pretty big. If they had started this in North America, or I shouldn't say that, if they had started this in UCAN, which again, 75 million household, highest RPO, funds everything. They, they pay for everything in US dollar, even if it's the currency is not US dollar, which right. has become a thing for them in this insane world. Um, but so, so very, very important market. If they had started it here, it would have been a whole other story. It would have been like, how many people actually cancel? What does that do to our thing? I don't think it would have been too, too many. I think, uh, I, but I also don't think they would have seen that many gains in the United States. I think in Latin America, where the uh, prices are slightly cheaper, People are already password sharing at a high amount. So you have a lot of accounts that can will be impo- um, uh, imposed by this. Uh, and you have this ability to kind of market and say, like, we're going to do 75% off. We're going to try it. If it doesn't work, Netflix knows and they go back to the drawing board. And it's like yeah. we figure out a different way. But the idea as they hit the saturation in the market, or they will say they won't, but in North America, let's say specifically, and as they are trying to figure out how to convert a lot of other subscribers globally who are more in tune to cable, because it's cheaper and it's less strenuous than what we do here. Um, the question for Netflix is how do we how do how do we make up for all of this potential lost revenue that we're getting from password sharing um, and that we're getting from other areas? Like, how do we fix that? And it wasn't an issue when there was less competition, but now you've got Disney making moves in Latin America with Star Plus and Disney Plus, and you've got HBO Max, which I believe is I think the the, the second most um, in demand streaming service in Latin America, just behind Netflix. Like, you have 
they're making ends and they're competing for attention. And they're also saying we're going to do sports. We're going to do other things that Latin America consumers have said in many, many um, studies that they want. And so Netflix in this moment of like, well, OK, well, we're going to potentially lose these customers that they have to spend on one service to an, a competitor. How do we bring them in if they're already watching our content? And we know that they like it. How do we ensure that they stay within us and we build up that subscriber base? But it's always, always with Netflix an experiment. Sometimes they do and it works out really well and they roll it out. Um, like they did a TikTok thing for comedy and that seems to be working decently. So they're rolling it out more games. They're rolling out more as they try to figure out how to do it. This could go either way, um, but it will be interesting to watch the next progression because of that reason. Yeah, it's um, I like it from a tech perspective, too, because they've built these abilities to Netflix is also a tech company. It's, you know, right. They, and they have some really interesting tech. They are building with this um, the ability to create sub accounts and have sub accounts have different credit cards and to to a calve off a profile and make it a separate account and stuff. And I think I think those are great things for them to have in their toolbox for other products and for again as a parent at some point if i go to my daughter and i say it is time for you to get your own netflix account netflix clearly has the ability now technically to take her profile and like move it off and have her have her own profile with all of her stuff and all of her lists and everything that she's got um that's kind of cool so they're they are probably to make the investment technically in building some of this stuff um it gives them the ability to experiment in other ways in other places, which is also kind of interesting. So I guess we'll keep an eye on it and we'll see what they do. But I just I, I wanted downstream listeners get to know the, the 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 detail, which is this is not Netflix is coming for your password sharing. It's way more nuanced than that. And it may be more about Netflix just trying to sniff out more revenue um, from from people who are not giving them revenue right now. We'll see how it goes. They'll see how it goes. Maybe they'll tell us. Maybe they won't. It's Netflix. Um, okay, we got we got more to talk about, uh, and and we've already been going for about an hour, or so uh, we'll we'll try to zip through a couple of things pretty fast. Um, I, I just wanted to mention a, a tweet that you said that I thought was really great, which was um, came across a comment on TikTok from a person who said they finally started watching Succession and Umbrella Academy because of all the TikTok edits, acting as a reminder that while user generated content platforms compete for overall consumption time, they actually add immense value to a property. I just I love this. The idea that, look, I know you're afraid that as a streamer that people are just watching TikTok videos, but like you're getting leads, you're getting subscribers from the memes on TikTok or wherever else. Right. Like it's all part of a and, and it should be part of your strategy. Right. Like make it possible for people to do this because that's your content making people interested and discovering your content through these social media venues. I, I just thought it was a great example of that and i can i can picture the like corporate person's like i don't want my stuff on tiktok tiktok's our enemy and it's like are they are they really people are going to use tiktok regardless right are they your enemy yes exactly that's exactly it and i also think it's very funny because they when they look at tiktok and this idea of like oh well we know that there are fans on tiktok who talk about our shows they don't engage with it and by they i don't want to include the social media teams who are very engaged with it and who are very aware of how sure. people use the internet um but with the executives it's kind of this idea of like oh well on tiktok they talk about the shows or they make an edit or whatever and that's really great but they don't think beyond what that means and so the way i always think about it is if you watch a lot of these edits whether they're marvel umbrella academy succession uh Di fan by diaries like every fandom is on there 
what you're actually getting is a whole different perspective into the show for an audience who's not getting that perspective from general marketing. They are, someone looks at Succession. I had a friend who said this to me once and I said, do you want to watch Succession? And she said, I have no interest in watching wealthy men, uh, wealthy white men be bad. I feel like that's all television has been. And I said, that's totally fair. And then she watched a bunch of Succession edits and she said, are they gay? And I was like, no. And she's like, all the edits are gay. And I was like, oh yeah, well, no, there's this like underlying fandom that's very into this idea. So she started watching it because of that. And she was like, oh, I can see it. I like this character. I like the idea of of this happening. And I was like, this is a way in for a lot of people who are like, here's how I see the characters. Here's how I relate to the characters. So one particular take from a a meme stream or a subculture or whatever you want to say, like one particular take kind of colored the the clips and, and and it was like oh well that's an interesting uh, maybe they didn't think of it this way but it's like that's an interesting read and that was a thing that allowed it to be accessible to me and now i want to see more exactly and this is not gonna i mean this is not yeah. gonna drive like fundamental revenue to the company it's not like all of a sudden people see a bunch of edits on tiktok and are like this is my life now but it is the difference in someone thinking this show is not for me because of general marketing and remember general marketing is split because they have right. more shows and movies ever how many times do we hear whether it's netflix hbo max Less Disney Plus, but Hulu, I didn't even know this was a thing. I wasn't aware because they have to allocate their marketing budget to what they think is going to be a big deal. So you don't really get to have this ability to say, what if we take this show that that they think is one thing and we think is different and try to, you know, A-B testing with the marketing. But on TikTok and on user-generated content platforms like uh, Reels on Instagram and YouTube – you get that for free. That's earned media. That is what made Minecraft a billion dollar mm-hmm. game. Like that is what happened. Like even if your your marketing campaign breaks through, and I'm just I'm really just restating your point here. Even even though the, even if your marketing campaign breaks through, it is a marketing campaign thought of by your marketing team, and you may have a great marketing team, and they may know exactly how to market the show, but it's not going to hit for everybody because it's one perspective. And if you turn the content out there and 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 watch as other people build your marketing for you to appeal to them and their their community. That's powerful, right? And and it can't be done by a marketing campaign. It, it's impossible because it is, you know, a marketing campaign can't be infinite. It has to pick its spots and then you will not know. And then somebody else will say, oh, actually what this show is great at is this. And and you would never have done that, but it reaches people like it's it's brilliant. I love it. It's yeah, I, I think about TikTok all the time. I talk to my clients about TikTok and it's funny and they're always like, yeah, I know we're, we're, we're trying to be on TikTok. And I'm like, no, you're trying to be on it in an official capacity, which right. is is marketing for you. It's this idea of like, yes, we're going to promote our movies or whatever it might be. Netflix, for example, is by uh, Netflix buys hashtags because if you use a certain hashtag, it will, you know, people think it will help you get to the for you page. So if you look at like the Adam project, there's 4.5 billion impressions uh, or video or views for those videos. But half the videos are not about the Adam project. It's just people using it to game TikTok. Uh-huh. So like that's not the marketing we're talking about. I'm saying like you there's a way to for what YouTube did for the gaming industry. And there's a bunch of papers out this where gaming developers and publishers said we're going to let people play full game, full walkthroughs of our game on YouTube and Twitch because it actually leads to more sales. This is what created Roblox and Minecraft. This is what made them the games they are. There is a version of that that will happen for streaming because identity is now intertwined with fandom for people under the age of 25. Like it is it is a thing that becomes a whole part of their life. It is why Barnes and Nobles is seeing an increase in sales is because people on BookTok can't show off digital books. They have to go buy physical books so they can make videos about those books. Like there's this world that they can tap into and they just 
don't know how. And it's like, but TikTok is not your enemy. They're consuming time on it, but they're not spending 18 hours watching TikTok. They're going to go from TikTok to watching something else. You can be that something else. There's just a, you just have to embrace it. Yeah. All right. Um, another big story that we need to at least touch upon is the fact that, uh, again, a variety of report here that um, what is going to happen when Discovery and HBO Max, you know, Discovery and Warner Media come together. And the report is now that, no, it's going to be one service. There will be an interim period where um, where they are probably bundled together. But in the long run, the corporate goal will be to put the Discovery stuff at, in, presumably into HBO Max. But basically, they'll put them together into one service. And um, I have two things here. One is your comment that was uh, based on your demand index from Parrot Analytics. If you combine Warner Media and Discovery's demand share, they're effectively tied with Disney, the largest corporate owner of all demand share, and it'll happen in an instant once the merge occurs. That's really interesting. And then my other thing is, but what of CNN Plus, our beloved mascot on this podcast that we talk about all the time? What will happen? Who will speak for CNN Plus? Anyway, what do you think about this? Uh, them, them just saying, yeah, we're gonna. It's gonna be one thing. We're not gonna try to ma- navigate two things. It's gonna be one thing. Yeah, I mean, to go off the theme of our last podcast, and I'll keep it short, but I mean, the word inevitable. Uh, David <laughs> Zaslav has said over time and time again, and he's not wrong, that most people don't want to sign up for 10 different streaming no. services. The advantage to the bundle, uh, the cable bundle, as bloated as it was, is everything was in one spot. You paid one company. Now, that was its own issues if we want to get into monopolization on the cable front, but that really it it was easier than trying to keep track of all your bills like we didn't have to have apps like Truebill in a non-streaming age because everything went to like five different people you had like electricity you had cable like you knew where they were coming in from i think with streaming especially i'm I'm literally i'm writing a research paper on this right now like there's three different types of bundles there's the um scale play there's the economic uh the economy builder uh sorry ecosystem builder and then there's the cross-pollinate Right. And so the scale play is something like Disney Plus with its streaming services, which actually can work for them because they're also independently different that you're actually going to tap into a bunch of different sources and you're going to increase your ARPU as opposed to just having one streaming service. Like that makes sense for them. You've got your ecosystem builder, which is Apple, Amazon. They go like, we're going to take this in and we hope that it sells Apple One or that it sells more iPhones and it keeps you in there. Or, you know, you use Amazon Prime more often, whatever it might be, you go to Twitch. And then there's the cross-pollinate. And there's this idea of um, people who bundle with different streaming services. Like you've got um, Spotify will team up with Hulu and they do like a student discount and like you can get both of them and they both increase their subscribers. But then what you have with Warner Discovery is not any of those. What you have with them is perfectly complementary programming that on one streaming service will justify the price increase that they're inevitably going to give to it. And then you bring CNN Plus into that fold. Like you just naturally bring it away and you effectively give it away for free. And the content budget is is figured out a certain way. I imagine it goes down mm. um, because there's a lot of programming very similar but you want to keep your talent happy. I heard from a, uh, I heard from a, a Warner person that a big part of, I think, CNN Plus is to keep talent happy in this talent battle where everybody right. wants the, uh, Jake Tapper or Anderson Cooper. We'll give whomever. you a streaming show. Look at that. We'll give you a streaming show. But I do think this was wholly inevitable because it doesn't fall into those other three sections really well. Mm-hmm. It will inevitably scale the product. But most people – 
it, like it's 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 a weird thing of like Disney Plus and ESPN Plus offer totally different things. Like you could bundle it, but are you really going to bring that much of an audience? And like they they're vastly different. People who want sports might not necessarily want um, Star Wars. Like that's not necessarily a big crossover. But I imagine people who want HBO are not always watching HBO. They also want crime series, true crime. They also want Home and Garden. Like they want these yeah. things that you put on when you do laundry or whatever it is. So for them. Adding that into one service and creating something that is entirely undeniable and being like something for everyone or every, you know, or everything for uh, as opposed to being everything for someone is a smart play. Yeah. And the discovery, you know, the discovery streaming service isn't that impressive. And it's like a five dollar a month thing. HBO Max is much is a much different kind of beast. But one thing that struck me when they launched Disney Plus is that they made a big deal about the fact that they had National Geographic because they really did want to have this other brand that had a different kind of promise of what the content would be and putting discovery content. That's what the discovery content is and putting putting all of that stuff. And uh, they have a bunch of stuff that I feel like HBO Max isn't isn't that good at. And so it's, it seems like a good connection between the two. And then you throw in the CNN content. And I think that in the end, that makes sense. I, I, I have had thoughts about ESPN Plus, maybe save it for another time. But like ESPN Plus does originals and they do live sports. And I'm not entirely convinced that their originals strategy wouldn't work great on Disney Plus slash Hulu. Um because it's just shows about sports, which is different than live sports, which is kind of, I feel like the real promise of ESPN plus is, is the live sports part, but um, they're splitting the difference there. Um, okay. We should move on though. Let's move on. I got a couple of letters here. Anyway, Love we'll it. keep an eye on CNN plus we're going to keep it. <laughs> uh, this is from Z in the seven Oh three who says, I've been holding out on seeing Spider-Man no way home doing, do the ongoing pandemic. I've been looking forward to Sony finally releasing a digital version. Turns out the first high-quality digital copy to exist was a leaked copy that fell off the back of a truck two weeks before Sony had scheduled their digital release, uh, causing Sony to change their plans and bump up the release by a week. Do you think a leak like this is a sign Sony waited too long to release a digital copy? The three- or four-month window between theatrical and home is starting to feel antiquated to me. What do you think? Love to your mother, Z, in the 703, by the way. Um, My initial reaction is that level of piracy for that movie because of the length of it being in theaters and because of the turnout that that movie had is not a big deal to sony like that is something where sony's like sure whatever like if it was gonna be pirated somehow or somewhere like this will be somewhere available you know probably before this um and the money that they are still going to make off people who are buying it um or or renting i think it's only available for buying uh buying just because they want to own it because like it's a spider-man movie is still pretty large. So I don't think for a movie like Spider-Man, we won't see changes like that. I will say it's been very nice to see Scream 5 and now Jackass Forever become come to Paramount Plus as fast as they've come. I think mm-hmm. that's the first noticeable moment I've had where I'm like, oh, I like the 45 days. Reminder, um, like 95% of movies make uh, the like 95% of their revenue within the first 30 to 45 days, and then right. it completely falls off. So for this is a nice thing where like this is what would get me to sign up for Paramount Plus is not long after they're in theaters, basically in the blip of an eye, basically in the time I remember that they're out, they're already on Paramount Plus. You can go and stream it, you can put it on, there's new shows. Like that is where this method really works between the shortening the window between the theatrical and then not even a pay one window just goes directly to streaming i think for something like spider-man something like the batman there is still a a, a sizable audience who will buy it on digital who will buy the dvd who will buy the blu-ray that for them it doesn't make any sense to not to just bl- shorten that length of time remember spider-man is still making money in theaters like yeah. it's still generating decent revenue um so yeah that i it, not for these types of films 
Right. And Sony, Sony, you know, Sony isn't, it doesn't have a streaming service. It's itching to put it on, but I will also say to Z in the 703 that I think if they had released it digitally uh, three weeks earlier, the leak would have been three weeks earlier. I think that the leak was related to the fact that they were putting it together for digital release and for disc release and that I think it's tied together. If they had gone two months earlier, I think the leak to BitTorrent would have happened two months earlier. So I don't think it's that that itself is a sign. I actually was very impressed that they that they kept it uh, from leaking for so long, which is good because, you know, that's that's how they got people to to keep uh, waiting for it instead of just downloading it. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it, 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 we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. I agree. The 45 days feels really good. And Spider-Man, they're like, you know, we don't care. People are still watching it in the theaters. We're going to make them. I, I, I get it. I get why they did that. <laughs> I don't have to like it, but I get it. Uh, okay, one more. Uh, Jason and Julia, with internet speeds creeping up, are there any or do you foresee any streaming services that offer less or uncompressed 4K options, maybe as a paid-for extra or even as a download-only option? Because I suspect there will be picture-quality geeks like many of us that must be willing to pay for best po- possible quality, even if it means foregoing streaming. Thanks, love the show, and love to your mothers. Leon. Um, well, Leon... Uh, some services make you pay Netflix makes you pay for 4k HDR, yeah. which I think is interesting. Um, I know this because I just dropped that tier because they raised their prices. And so I went down to the lower tier because I thought 4k HDR, all, I'll get it on literally every other service that I have and I'm just going to forego it on Netflix. But yeah. you know, I don't know how good people's bandwidth is. I, I think that the, all these streaming services do offer adaptive bandwidth so when they're sending you 4k hdr they will continue to increase what they can give you up to a point um never say never i think that if you're a picture quality geek you should probably be buying the 4k blu-ray at this point because that's enormous bandwidth and nobody's home internet uh is probably going to be downloading that from a cdn from a streaming service like i i don't know i just and the download idea where you like you pre-fill your your player with 4k content so you can watch it later. I, I I don't know. I, I think most people aren't going to care. And so maybe someday there'll be a separate streaming product for people who care about picture quality and audio quality. Um, but I, I feel like this is actually a really nice niche for um, 4k Blu-ray, honestly, because then there's no bandwidth issue at all. You've got the disc, you can watch it whenever you want. Julia, what do you think about this? Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Netflix gives you the option to not have 4K and that's their version of cheaper plans. It's, it's, you can, if you want 4K, you can upgrade. Um, in international markets where it's more mobile centric, where internet, broadband internet is not as strong, um, Netflix, you know, may do something where it's like, we'll offer a 720p version right. and that's cheaper and we can kind of do that. Um, but that's not going to happen in UK anytime soon where our broadband rates are very good. Um, UK, it's probably not going to happen in. That you're looking more at certain parts of the Asia Pacific region and Latin America. That's more where you're looking for those types of plans. Um, everyone is just no, no one will, you know, this is basically a marketing question, right? It's, it's effectively like if we don't say it's 4K, you're naturally paying for a cheaper version, uh, because the 4K version is more expensive. Um, and so in areas where they're trying to onboard people who are still looking at that price and are a little wary, that's when you kind of say we have a cheaper 720p version, a cheaper 1080p, whatever it might be. Like we're going to do this and we'll label it as cheaper. So it might lead to more customers coming in. But otherwise, like what they'll do in the United States and in Canada and, and parts of Europe is just say, 
this is the normal plan. This is a, you can pay 14 bucks for it. Um, there might be, you know, a $10 plan and that'll be like, oh, there's, you know, two people who are allowed on it. It might be a little bit lower frame rate. And then, um, and then they'll be like, here's your 4k plan. Like they, they go about it that way because we are more likely to upgrade as consumers than you can than we are to downgrade. Um, and versus around the world, people are more, uh, there are countries where people are more likely just because of expenses and cost of living, um, where they're more or not cost of living, excuse me, because of expenses and their own costs where they are more willing to say, okay, well, I will buy a cheaper version because I don't necessarily care about 4k. It's not really a thing in our country or whatever it might be. So probably not in the U S if you're here, I would not expect that anytime soon. Yeah. Um, I mean, never say never bandwidth. Never say never. There'll be 8K at some point and there'll be, but, but it's, yeah, it's true. Also 4K streaming is, I always view 4K streaming as being higher bitrate streaming. Like there, is it really 4K? Well, yeah, sort of, but it's compressed. And so like higher bitrate is good. And, and then, yeah, I, I, I will admit I buy, I buy some 4K Blu-rays. That's the only optical disc thing I buy now is they're movies I really, really love. And I think will really, really benefit from having that high bitrate. And um, I will, you know, watch those. And it's like a little ceremony of like, we're going to put in the disc. It's the <laughs> old times, but it looks and sounds great uh, because the bit rates are so much higher than they are on streaming. So I get it, but I don't know. We'll get there eventually, but I don't think there, it's going to happen anytime soon. Um, all right. Well, I think that brings us to the end. Uh, if you have a question for us, you can email us downstream at relay.fm. Works great. You can also tweet if you'd like downstream pod is who we are on Twitter. You should follow us. Love to your mothers. You can find Julia at loudmouthjulia on Twitter and at parrotanalytics.com and sometimes at puck.news. And you can find me at jsnell on Twitter and sixcolors.com. And Julia, uh, until next time, say goodbye. Until next time, guys. Goodbye. <laughs>